children and that we get to worship you. We love you, Father. We thank you. Well, 
and thank you that you are here.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Mm. King of kings, we worship you. We are gathered because of you. Only because of you, Jesus, do we have the capacity, the access, the ability, the desire, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, refresh us in that revelation, Lord God, that truth from your word, Lord. Help us never to get far from that truth, Lord God, but to keep it in our sights and build our lives upon it, Lord. Thank you, God. Holy God. Hmm. Thank you for what you're doing today, Lord, for what you will do today, Lord. We just avail ourselves to you. Holy God, your king. Oh, your king, Lord. Your king, Lord. Help us to live as though you're the king. Submitted, humble, grateful, worshipful, dependent. Lord, thank you, Lord. God, as we uh, get into your word today in Hebrews chapter 6, God, we want to grow in our understanding of the word and our understanding of you. We want to take steps forward, build upon a foundation of truth and grace, Lord. But beyond the foundation, Lord, God, we want to build something of glory for you, Lord, out of our lives. And uh, so, Lord, give us the grace and the wisdom to do that. Help us, we pray, Lord. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and say hello to your neighbor. We'll come back just a moment here. Hello, neighbor. Hey, neighbor. Thanks, Barry. Love you, buddy. my cross to bear so I could live in the freedom you died for. It's refreshing to um, just watch the people of God connect and fellowship together and just smile and love on each other. So I didn't want to interrupt that. <laughs> um, it's, it's good part of uh, God's plan. That's why 
God tells us not to forsake the gathering together of the saints. We need each other. We need uh, that encouragement, that connection, that uh, love that, we, that is shared. We need that. And uh, we're going to see a lot of people potentially this Christmas season that we don't see for a while and um, that we don't see typically during this, the year. And, um, and so take that, a little bit of that with you and just bless people with that fellowship and uh, watch what God will do. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, and we titled the message today, Spiritual Maturity is Not Optional If You Want Spiritual Victory. Spiritual Maturity is Not Optional If You Want Spiritual Victory. The two go hand in hand. A little five-year-old boy was in his kindergarten Sunday school class, and they were in the class talking about the creation, how God created the heavens and the earth, and This little guy, Johnny, was particularly intrigued by the fact that Eve was created from one of Adam's ribs. And uh, a few days later, uh, little Johnny was in his bedroom, and he was laying down, kind of rubbing, you know, holding his side. And and his mom said, Johnny, what's going on? He said, hi, my side really hurts. I feel like I'm going to have a wife. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Sometimes we just don't understand spiritual truth, right? We, we hear something and we go in all the wrong directions. And um, <laughs> spiritual maturity is not optional if we want spiritual victory. At the end of Hebrews 5, the writer wrote about spiritual maturity to his readers. He wrote to the Jews who would read it then, and he writes to us now. He called the people, he was kind of harsh, he called them spiritually dull spiritually dull. He said, you don't just, you just don't seem to listen. They had been believers long enough that they should be teaching others, but instead they needed others to teach them, again, the basics of the faith. The writer said that they're like infants, still on milk. They'd never pressed on and desired spiritual meat uh, graduating to solid food because of their stunted growth. <clears throat> because of their stunted growth, they lack the skill needed to know the difference between right and wrong. Did you hear that? Because of their stunted growth, they lack the skill needed to know the difference between right and wrong. And that's why we say spiritual maturity is not optional if you want spiritual victory. Maturity and victory go hand in hand. Ma- maturity, spiritual maturity, helps us to know the difference between right and wrong, helps us to discern in the moment, in the crucible, in the difficulty, in the temptation, helps us to understand the difference between right and wrong, and then choose the right path. In Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 12 today, just about half the chapter, and we'll pick it up next time. The writer says in Hebrews 6, 1, so let us Stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let's go on instead and become mature in our understanding. That's really what we're called to do as believers, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to move forward into mature uh, understanding. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded. He goes on, surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil 
uh, really means dead works. Remember, he's speaking to Jews who had converted to Christianity. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were completed Jews, spiritual Jews, or completed Jews. And uh, so he's saying, hey, we need to move from dead works and place our faith in God. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, dead works, and placing our faith in God. Number one, spiritual maturity develops as we repent from dead works and put our faith solely in God. Spiritual maturity develops as we repent from dead works and put our faith solely in God. Dead works are the works we do to gain God's favor. We have God's favor because of what Christ accomplished. He went to the cross taking the penalty for our sin upon himself, uh, paying the penalty so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So we have favor with God because of Jesus, not because of what we do. Dead works are the things we do in hopes that God will see us and then receive us based on the work we do. Now, there's a place for good works, and we're going to talk about that, but it's not to gain the favor of God or the acceptance of God. That favor and acceptance is solely because of what Jesus did on the cross. He was born. That's what we're celebrating this week. We're celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, in the incarnation, came. We just were singing about it. He came as a child to bring a message, to live among us, to become like us, to relate to us, to teach us, ultimately to die for us, and then to be resurrected and be seated at the right hand of the Father and continue that work from there. Dead works are the teachings we um, are the things we do in hopes that God will see us and receive us based on the work we do. That's why it's called dead works. Dead works are called dead because that is precisely what they are. They're dead. They don't accomplish what they hope to be to to accomplish what people hope they would accomplish. They they don't give us favor with God. The blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us favor with God. Dead things don't produce anything. The Bible tells us faith without works is dead. Why? Because dead things don't produce anything. James 2.26 in the New Living Translation says, Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. So there's a place for good works. It reflects our new life in Christ. It declares that we are new in Christ, but those works don't grant us access to the Father. Jesus does. Dead faith doesn't result in salvation because dead faith isn't faith at all. Dead faith is faith without works. Dead faith doesn't result in salvation because it's dead. Dead works don't result in salvation either because salvation is a gift of God's grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 in the ESV says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So spiritual maturity develops as we repent from dead works and put our faith solely in God. It changes our whole motivation. When we're putting our faith solely in God, we're saying, God, I, I, I trust you for my salvation, for my new life. But out of that new born-again 
life experience, I'm going to be living for you and doing good works for you, demonstrating my faith by my good works so that my faith isn't dead because faith without works is dead. <laughs> good works are the result of a genuine faith. <clears throat> Let me say that again. Good works are the result of a genuine faith. We do good because we are in Christ. We follow his example in his earthly life and ministry. Jesus went around doing good works, supernatural works, empowered by the Spirit of God. We're empowered by that same Spirit, and so we have the capacity by God's grace to do good works from the motivation to bless God and to bless others. Because we're called to love God and love others. And so out of that commandment, out of that, that call by, of God, we do good works because he's good. And we want to reflect him and live a life of good works, demonstrating our faith. We do good works because we're in Christ. Dead works are just that. They're dead. Dead works, again, it's all about motivation. What do, why are we doing what we're doing? Dead works are just that. They're dead. They don't help us in our relationship with God because they're motivated to gain access or favor from God, access to God, favor from God. So that doesn't help us because essentially we're saying, hey, uh, forget about the finished work of Christ on the cross. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, the, the reason Christ came to die on the cross is because we couldn't do our own thing. We can't do enough good in our own righteousness and our own good works to get grant ac or to gain access to the Father. So Jesus came. And so when we say we're going to try to you know, gain favor from the Father by doing our good works, we're essentially saying that the cross wasn't good enough. Jesus wasn't good enough. Dead works are just that. They're dead. They don't help us in our relationship with God. If anything, they take away from a genuine relationship with God, right? Because they shifts the focus. Again, because the only way we can have a relationship with God is because Jesus made it possible. And this is why we celebrate Jesus uh, every Sunday, but especially at Christmas and on Easter, because of what Jesus made possible through his shed blood on the cross. Let's move on, Hebrews 6.2. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so the author writes about four different things, kind of foundational things. You don't need further instructions about these things. One commentator wrote, when we consider the rudiments or the basics one by one, this that we see in verse 2, it is remarkable how little in the list is distinctive of Christianity, for practically every item could have its place in a fairly orthodox Jewish community. Each of them, indeed, acquires a new significance in a Christian context, but the impression we get is that existing Jewish beliefs and practices were used as a foundation on which to build the Christian faith. And so, these, this these things are important. They're part of our foundation and our heritage, but we must move on. These four things listed in verse 2 are the foundation. We need to understand them. Uh, but beyond the foundation, what goes on top of a foundation? Imagine building a building. You put the foundation in, and then just leave it there. What good is that foundation if there's nothing built upon it? Right, you build a foundation... Because you want to build a building, right? You get the foundation laid so that you can build something on top of it. And that's really what our lives are meant to be doing, building, a found, building on that foundation of truth, building a life that glorifies God and honors the Lord. 
we need to have the foundation. We don't get away from the foundation. The foundation is essential. You don't even really see the foundation in a building, but you know if it's not there, right? You know if the foundation's not there because you try to build anything without a, without a foundation, and as soon as there's, there's an earthquake or a storm, everything begins to fall apart, all right, so we need to have the foundation in our lives because if we don't have the foundation in our lives, these things that we'll unpack here in just a moment, then as soon as a storm hits our lives, then everything will fall apart. Our faith will be shaken. We won't continue to believe God or trust God or worship God. We won't do any of those things because our foundation is shaken and will fall apart. This is the reason, uh, potentially, that the Jewish people were were waffling they 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 had a they were trying to commingle their their old life and their new life they understood truth but they understood it incompletely and they wanted to move forward with that foundation but under misunderstanding that foundation and and not wanting to um, give their lives fully to jesus they begin to waffle and waver maybe you're here today where you're saying man i want to go to church and i know i need that foundation, but I also don't want to give up my old life. I'm not sure I want to do that. I mean, I don't want to get radical about Jesus. I, 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 I know I need the foundation, and I need all of that, and I need fire insurance and that sort of thing, but I don't want to get radical about Jesus. And so there's this attempt to commingle. This is what the author is addressing here, this commingling of the old life, the old religious system that a lot of these Jews were entrenched in. Uh, they recognize that it was incomplete and that Jesus was the Messiah. So they moved to Jesus, began to worship Jesus, declaring him as God. But then they begin to waffle and they begin to uh, lose their faith in God and they begin to backslide, as it were. And um, so they had maybe the foundation, but they misunderstood the foundation. So we're going to look at the foundations and, and, and talk about those and unpack them and just see what God will speak to us about the foundation. So again, these four things listed in verse 2 are the foundation. We need to understand the foundation so that we can build a building. We need to have that foundation solidly in place so that we can build a building on top of that. And so God willing, verse 3, Hebrews 6, we will move forward to further understanding. Again, further understanding implies a building on the foundation. It requires something of us. This faith requires something of us. That's why Jesus, when he called the disciples, he said, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, you're going to have to abandon that old, old way of living. Remember what happened after the crucifixion and the burial of Christ? Disciples said, hey, I'm going to go fishing, right? I'm going to go back to the old life, right? Because they, they, they were shaken in their understanding and shaken in their faith. And what did Jesus do? He went after them, right? And then when they saw Jesus afresh, they followed him. Number two, spiritual maturity develops as we move forward to further understanding further understanding beyond the rudimentary teaching concerning baptism the laying on of hands the resurrection of from the dead and the final judgment to be thorough today though let's briefly recap these teachings that the writer of hebrews is challenging his readers to move from he's not telling his readers to forget about them because you can't ever forget about the foundation it's essential but he's saying from the foundation, you must build. You must build something. There must be something, evidence, fruit of your faith. So he doesn't want them to forget about the foundation, but to move forward 
to move from to build onto with further understanding. So let's unpack these four things, baptisms. <clears throat> Notice the word is plural. The word in the Greek for baptisms there is baptismos. It's not a hard word to remember. But it refers to ceremonial cleansing. It doesn't refer to the baptism that we read about when the believers of God get baptized in the faith. It's referring to a, a washing, a purification affected by means of water. So the people being tempted to slip back into Judaism and dead works are maybe trying to commingle Judaism and Christianity. There it is again. But there's a difference between ceremonial washings prescribed by the Mosaic law and Christian baptism. So they're using baptism, baptisms in, a, in the plural, speaking about ceremonial washings. Remember uh, the religious leaders approached Jesus and said, hey, we're we're confused or offended that your disciples don't wash their hands. They don't follow this, the ritual of ceremonial hand washing before they eat. And Jesus challenged them and said, hey, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him defiles him. He's talking about all of the wretched things that are in a man's heart. So he said, hey, it's not so much important that, we be, that we're careful about what goes into us, but it's what comes out of us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So there's a difference. There's, the ceremonial hand washing was a tradition of man. It was Mosaic law. It was something that was external. What God was wanting to do through baptism was transformational. It was internal. It was the whole being. God, the difference between ceremonial hand cleaning and baptism was completely Different, but yet they're trying to commingle the two, trying to maybe get along with both camps. <laughs> Have you ever tried to do that? You want to uh, get along with the world, but you also want to get along with the church. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to hold on to their old life and their new life, and trying to commingle the two. Don't mix. It's like oil and water. Ceremonial washing doesn't do what baptism does. Let's look at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21. It says, Christ died once for our sins. An innocent person died for those who are guilty. Christ did this to bring you to God when his body was put to death and his spirit was made alive. Verse 19, Christ then preached to the spirits that were being kept in prison. It's a whole nother sermon that we'll get to eventually. They had disobeyed God while Noah was building the boat, but God had been patient with them. Eight people went into the boat and were brought safely through the flood. Those flood waters were like baptism that now saves you. But baptism is more than just washing your body or ceremonially cleaning. It means turning to God with a clear conscience because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Christ is now in heaven where he sits at the right side of God. All angels, authorities, and powers are under his control. So baptism reflects something of transformation that's happened in our lives. It's a declaration that we understand that Jesus died for us and has adopted us. And we are identifying as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The significance is incredible. And so if you're here today and you know Jesus, but you've never been baptized, you've never made that public declaration of your faith through the waters of baptism, you need to get baptized. Not for salvation, but out of obedience. Jesus was baptized, right? And John baptized him in, in the Jordan, and 
and, and he modeled that for us. So maybe that's going to be the thing that kind of decides for you or helps you decide or helps you to make the break because maybe you've been a little um, incognito about your faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody maybe knows that you're a Christian at your workplace or maybe even in your neighborhood or among your family members. Baptism is a public declaration. Ceremonial hand cleaning was just something that everybody did if you were a Jew, right? Baptism indicated that you are now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.10 says, For the old system deals only with food and drinks and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So the better system is Jesus. Jesus is the better system because he instituted a new covenant. Baptism in water is part of that new covenant that God has called us into. So that's baptism or baptisms. Next is laying on of hands. We demonstrated that just this morning when we laid hands on Daniel and Solvi, praying for them. So it's something that we see in the scripture and it's something that we practice as the church and it's something that was foundational, and we'll see why, in the early church and, and to this day. Um, we lay hands, number one, uh, to appoint leaders, right? First Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, keeping yourself pure. So what that means in the context of that is that when you're declaring a person to be a leader or anointing a person to be a leader, you lay your hands on them, kind of anointing them, declaring them to be a leader. So this is one of the ways in which we uh, use the laying on of hands or for healing the sick. In Mark 1, 40 through 42, a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus begging to be healed. If you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. Now there's plenty of examples of Jesus healing people by just speaking it, but then there's other examples of, of Jesus laying his hands on people and healing them. Jesus reached out and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be healed. Instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. So uh, a lot of us need to remember that God has called us to lay our hands on people so that we might pray for them so they might get healed. I was at work years ago and um, a friend of mine was sick at work, and he was in the middle of everybody. And I said, hey, can I pray for you? And I laid my hands on him. I prayed for him and um, just agreed for God's healing and just did it in front of everybody. It didn't, didn't matter. It doesn't matter. I was at Andrini's uh, this week, and um, we were, I was praying with a brother just at Andrini's, Andrini's, a brother and a, a gal that I just met, and we were holding hands, laying hands on each other. We were agreeing together. So the laying on of hands, it speaks of community. It speaks of agreement. Um, in Acts 9, remember on, on the road to Emmaus, Saul of Tarsus got knocked off his, uh, his horse and, or his donkey or whatever he was riding or on the road. He got blinded. So Ananias went and found Saul. Acts nine seventeen. he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So two things happened there. Ananias laid his hands on him. He received his sight, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's another reason that we lay hands on somebody for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout the New Testament. 
for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Acts 8, 18 and 19, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that I, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon was misled in his understanding, but he saw something that happened, that transpired when the apostles laid, the disciples laid their hands on people, they received the Holy Spirit. We see the same thing when the apostle Paul in Acts 19 Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. So the Holy Spirit came upon these people as a result of the laying on of hands. There's some kind of, something that happens supernaturally when we lay our hands on people. People begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. They begin to live out of the that new life where a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. We're promised that salvation that will be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're also told to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit because we constantly need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So maybe you're here today and you need somebody to lay hands on you that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit again. Or maybe you just ask the Lord, God, come. But if you don't have the faith or the grace upon you to believe that God will do that, come forward at the end of service and we'll pray over you. We'll lay hands on you and pray that the Lord fills you with his Holy Spirit and that all the fruit that he desires and is designed to come out of you will begin to flow out of you. A lot of us are working in our natural man, our natural strength, um, trying to do the work and the will of God, and what we really need is the Holy Spirit. We're frustrated because our lives are fruitless. We're trying to do all of these things in our own strength, and what we need is we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Earlier this week, um, I had thrown my back out, and... um, and uh, I was just hurting for days, and then I got a cold on Thursday, and um, um, and then I'm, I'm talking to my elders, and uh, two two of the elders and their wives were both have been to the hospital and been sick and been dealing with all kinds of stuff, and I recognized that we were under a spiritual attack, and so we just began to pray. I reached out to some people, and we just began to pray, and and. Um, I took a COVID test yesterday because I was thinking, man, if I got COVID, I can't go to church. I can't do that. You know, it puts me out for the, through the end of the year, and I don't want that. So I took a COVID test, and thankfully it came back negative. Um, and so I just knew as I, I said, okay, Lord, I'm not feeling good. My back's thrashed, and I got this cold. Um, am I supposed to press on? And I felt like the Lord said, yeah, press on. So I, I just knew that the Holy Spirit was going to do something to to restore me by this morning, and I'm feeling better this morning. I'm all doped up on medication, but I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling better. Um, got a cough drop in my mouth, you know. But So sometimes the Lord calls us when we're not feeling up to it physically to do the stuff that he wants us to do spiritually, and he will empower us to do that. He'll give us the grace to do that. So don't just give up if you're feeling weak or in capable in your natural man, press in and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And, and how, how do I trust you to move forward and just see what the Lord will do? Maybe you just feel inadequate. You say, Lord, I don't feel adequate for the, what you called me to do or for the life that you called me to lead. Well, good. That's actually a good, humble thing, place to be. None of us should feel adequate in our own man, in our own strength. None of us should feel that way. We never approach ministry with, from our own adequacy. 
we always approach ministry from a place of brokenness and dependence and contrition and humility, approaching everything that God calls us to do with gentleness, with just a humble dependence on him and just leave the fruit up to him. So if you're feeling inadequate, don't give up. Just ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. And when you do, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those things. And the Spirit of God will work through you. And a power, the power of God, will begin to flow through you in ways that you don't even understand. You'll say stuff that you never thought you could say or thought you would say or thought, you know, that you'll say things that were never in your mind to say, the things maybe that you don't even understand that you're saying. You'll begin to pray with a greater level of faith and confidence. You'll be able to act with greater obedience, all of those things. So that's baptism and laying out of hands. And there's the resurrection of the dead. We need to understand the resurrection of the dead. I'm never going to get through this message today. <laughs> the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, uh, 12 through 23 just unpacks the resurrection. And then you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read a little bit from that as well. But we need to understand what happens after we die. It's part of the foundation of our understanding and faith that gives us confidence to live in the here and now for Jesus. We need to understand what God has in store for us. So let's just read some verses of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead... Why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not raised either, has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then, boy, all of our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles will be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But they can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. And in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, man, we are meant to be pity, pitied. Uh, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been, he has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Verse 21. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now we're getting to the good stuff. Well, it's all good stuff. Now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to the resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, that all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. <laughs> He's coming back. Whew, I'm ready for that, boy, I tell you. Ready for that. 42 through 44, 1 Corinthians says, um, well, let's go into 35 here. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? Now, this is something that we talk about in memorial services all the time, but maybe it's something we should be talking about when people are still alive as well. What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, imagine a literal seed, put it into the ground. It doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first, right? And what you put into the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it 
the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. So we are essentially a seed that will be planted, and God will give us a new body resurrected and new life. In the same way, verse 42, dropping down to verse 42, it is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Hmm. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. We'll still have a body, but they'll be spiritual bodies. They'll be like Christ's body. We'll have a natural human body. We're not going to be spirit bodies. That's a contradiction in terms, spirit bodies. We're, we're going to be spiritual bodies in heaven. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. So you're going to have a body in heaven. You'll be recognizable in heaven. Um, if you die as a hundred-year-old, you'll probably have, uh, some would say, that you'll have your body, the body of your most your best life, part of your life, maybe when you were 35 or 40 or 52. I hope I don't have my 52-year-old body. I want my 35-year-old body. I could still run marathons and didn't hurt. and hmm. That would be all right, huh? I don't want to live for eternity in this broken thing. <laughs> But I want my eternal body, my resurrected body, and then I will be happy, happy, happy to live forever and ever. Amen. Now let's look at eternal judgment, the last on the list of Hebrews 6. There are two judgments. There's the believer's judgment. We've been kind of alluding to this all along about building on that foundation. We will actually stand before the Lord at the believer's judgment and give an account for our lives whether we built on that foundation or not. And then we will receive rewards or not based on what we have built by God's grace and his strength for his glory. So we're not doing it in our strength for our glory. We're doing it in God's strength for his glory. The believer's judgment where believers will stand before the Lord to give an account for our lives, our fruit will be judged. Isn't that interesting? 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. So this is speaking to believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, speaking to believers, people who have come to faith in Christ, in Christ, we will stand before the Lord and give an account for our lives. So we get um, saved? What have we done? What's the fruit of our salvation? What's the fruit of our faith? What have we done with our faith in Jesus Christ? That will get judged, and we will receive whatever we deserve, not heaven or hell, because that's already decided by Christ, right? We're saved by grace through faith, but our works and the fruit of our lives will be judged, and we see that throughout the, the Scripture in the Old and the New Testament. We must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. There's two judgments, the believer's judgment, and then the final judgment, or the great white throne judgment. This is for un, 
believers. We see in Revelation chapter 20 that there's a judgment for unbelievers. These are people who have not accepted, received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in one or two camps as a human being. You are a believer or you are an unbeliever. You are in Christ or you are out of Christ, outside of Christ. If you're in Christ, you have eternal life. If you're outside of Christ, you do not. You will spend eternity in one of two places, either heaven or hell, depending on your decisions here in the earth. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 says, And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, the earth and the sky, fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books, the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So those are the two judgments. The believer's judgment, where God will open up the books and read and evaluate and judge our life work. And there's the unbeliever's judgment. Spiritual maturity develops as we move forward to further understanding. So we need to understand those things. That's the foundation that allows us to build a solid life for Christ. So we, we, we drive around. The only time you see a foundation without a building is because somebody ran out of resource, right? Something got shut down somehow. You're resourced by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will give you the resource, the strength that you need to build upon your life. But you got to, to do it his way and according to his plans and with his foundation. You don't want to get to heaven with just a foundation. Get to heaven, great, but you don't want just a foundation. You want to have built something with your life. Spiritual maturity develops as we move forward to further understanding. I might stop right there. What time is it? Hmm. Just take a look real quick here. Hang with me another five minutes or so, and we'll get through the rest of this. So again, spiritual maturity develops as we move forward to further understanding, meaning we need to understand this truth and then go on in the maturation process and grow in knowledge and application. Knowledge and application, so it's not, not just about learning information, it's about the application of that truth that we see in the rest of the Bible. Back to Hebrews 6, for it's impossible, verse 4, for it's impossible to bring Back to repentance, those who were once enlightened. Remember, these people are beginning to backslide a bit. Those who have experienced the good things, these are believers who are beginning to backslide. It's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. They received the light of Christ. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. And 
who then turn away from God. It's impossible to bring such people back to repentance, but by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding, up, holding him up to public shame. So again, this verse is speaking to believers. People have had a real encounter based on the Scripture, based on the context. These are people who have had a real encounter with Jesus based on the text and the context of the whole of Hebrews and this chapter. These are people who have known God. So this verse is speaking about believers. These verses are speaking about believers who have turned away from God who potentially have become apostate. And so there's a warning the writer is giving to these people who are beginning to backslide, wanting to commingle their old life with their new life because it's a slippery slope that will cause them to fall away from the Lord altogether. Apostate is a person who renounces religious belief. So this verse is speaking of, to Jews who are potentially rejecting the finished work of Christ on the cross and then are returning to a system of law and of dead works. Part of that system of law and dead works is sacri- the sacrificial system, the animal sacrifices that are part of the Old Covenant. So they would, as part of that, going back to the Jewish way of doing things, they would go, go back to animal sacrifices, thereby rejecting what Jesus has done as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, he was crucified and gave his life as the final, once for all, finished and done sacrifice on the cross. And so by rejecting Jesus and going back to the old system, they're becoming apostate, falling away from the Lord, and, and this is what the Scripture says about them. These people, speaking of the Jews, would, re, would return to religious Jewish practices. Maybe it's like the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness. They've been delivered out of Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. They continually complain against the Lord. They're rebelling against the Lord. They're building idols uh, to worship, rejecting God as their leader and Lord and guide and king. And so he made them wander in the wilderness until that whole generation died off before they entered into the promised land. So these people, speaking of the Jews, would return to Jewish religious practices like animal sacrifices to make atonement for their sins. Imagine, so it's a slap in the face to Christ because they're rejecting the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're rejecting the Savior of the world, the Messiah. John 1, 29 through 34 says, The next day John, this is John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John recognized him. He was sent as the forerunner to identify, to prepare the way for Jesus and then to identify him. He is the one I was talking about when I said a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. And I did not recognize him as as a Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. So John, this Jewish man, declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and these people who had once believed that are now rejecting that and going back to their old way of of living. How does a person know if they're an apostate? Maybe you're here today and you're worried that you might be an apostate. Maybe you've committed a sin, done something, and you feel like you might be an apostate. Maybe you've uh, committed the unpardonable sin. If you're worried, if you're worried, if you're here today and you're worried that you might have sinned this way, you probably haven't. 
Why? Because an apostate is someone who's hardened their heart toward the things of God. And God can only cause people to uh, come to a place of repentance through the good work of his spirit in their hearts, through a tender heart, through a broken heart, a contrite heart. And so if you're feeling like, maybe I've, maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin, you, you haven't. Because your heart is to confess your sin to the Lord and repent. An apostate has a hard, persistently unrepentant heart. Titus 1, 12 through 16, speaking of the people of Crete, maybe this is a good example for us. We just studied Titus. Verse 12, it says, Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. This is true, so reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths, and the commands of people have turned away from the truth. That's what's essentially happening here in Hebrews. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. So Hebrews 6 helps us as we wrap this up here with a helpful picture for us. Verse 7, when the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if, and this again speaks of the building upon the foundation, but if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn the field and burn it. So it's, it's a picture for us. If the field produces good things, it has God's blessings. But if the field bears thorns and thistles, it will be burned up. Speaking of the final judgment. You will know a person by their fruit. At the end of it all, we'll stand before the Lord and God will judge our fruit. So this passage is not speaking to someone who has fallen into sin but has repented. It's not what this passage is speaking to. A repentant person has a tender heart. An unrepentant person, their heart is very hard and unreachable. Proverbs 24, 16 says, The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. The godly may trip seven times. Remember when uh, Jesus was speaking to Peter about forgiveness? He said, how, much, how, how many times do I need to forgive? Seventy times seven. Essentially, Jesus is saying, like me, over and over again, my grace is sufficient. So if you have struggled in your faith, struggled with sin, but have repented and continue to repent, then this verse is not speaking to you. Hmm. I'll just read the last few verses here. Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. Isn't that good news? <laughs> he makes a point, the writer makes a point, and then encourages them. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation, a life of fruitfulness. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him. And how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts. In order to make certain that, you, uh, that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. 
That's what he's calling these people out of, challenging them to uh, move from. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Faith and endurance. We're saved by grace through faith. That faith is demonstrated by our endurance, by our good works. We're saved solely by the grace of God. But that grace is demonstrated by our faith, and that faith is demonstrated by our good works, our endurance, our ability to trust God and believe God all the days of our life. Spiritual maturity is not optional if you want spiritual victory. Number one, spiritual maturity develops as we repent from dead works and put our faith solely in God. Let's invite the worship team forward. We're going to sing another song here. Number two, spiritual maturity develops as we move forward to further understanding. Number three, spiritual maturity develops when we, refu- when we refuse to give up. When we refuse to give up. I was talking to someone earlier this week about 102 and all of the challenges and hurdles. 102 is our new worship center that will hopefully be open in March. Um, the drywall starts this week. Good things are happening. But he said, hey, you know, how, how's it been the process? I said, I said, when you just refuse to give up and continue to trust God, God always comes through. And so that is true for our lives as believers in Christ. We need to not give up. Refuse to give up. Continue to move forward. Continue to repent and move forward as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then watch what God will do. Right, all the promises of God require patience, endurance. It requires that we wait on God and trust his timing, and not our own, that we don't, that we refuse to give up. Where have you given up? Have you given up on your walk with the Lord? Have you given up on your marriage? Have you given up on your kids? Have you given up on your influence, your fruitfulness? Don't give up don't give up. Let's go ahead and stand up and worship. Lord, we refuse to give up. We refuse (laughs) to give up, Lord. So, God, as I stretch out my hands and pray over us, Lord God, I just pray for endurance in Jesus' name. Strong faith in Jesus' name. God, that we would build on that foundation, that we would make sure that foundation is in place and that we believe the, the truth about who you are and about, about the, do, the proper doctrines that we're to build our lives and, and ministries upon, Lord God, that we would move beyond that, Lord God, that we would put those in place and then build in Jesus' name, that we'd build in Jesus' name, that we, we would build and not grow weary, that we would never give up. So, Lord, help us to worship today in spirit and in truth. And as we worship, Lord God, let it be a declaration that says, God, I'm never giving up. Things may get difficult, but I'm not giving up. It's going to be, 2022 is going to be a good year, Lord, because we haven't quit. We haven't given up. Corporately as a church and individually. If you need uh, prayer during this last set of worship, be people down here who will be praying for you. I'm not going to pray for you because I don't want to get too close to you with my cold, but uh, there's others. <clears throat> if you need people to lay hands on you so that you might be healed or filled with the Holy Spirit, so that you might be encouraged, so that you might receive from God what you need, then come on forward and people will pray for you. Let's worship.
We love you, Lord. We thank you that we are here in church today or sitting at home and watching. God, we thank you that your presence, you are with us everywhere, God. And so we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.